Welcome to the first episode, 312, the HRP Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Simmons. Who's HRP? Well, we're an engineering firm. We're an environmental consulting firm. We're a health and safety firm. But we're much more than just the services we provide. And the 312 Podcast is going to explore exactly what that means. Each month, we'll take a look at what HRP does and who HRP is. We have an internal motto here. Work hard, play hard. I know that sounds like something you'd see painted in script on a piece of wood in Bed Bath & Beyond. I actually have that exact thing sitting at my desk. But at HRP, it's not a cliche. It's a way of life. To show you what we mean, we structured each episode of the podcast into two sections. The first section you'll hear is work hard, where you'll get to know the services that HRP has to offer. In the play hard section, we'll sit down with employees and sometimes guests and get to know each other a little better. On this episode of 312, we have a very special conversation with our friends from Elysian Medical Distribution. We have our first check-in with Alicia Washington, Marketing Director and Director of JEDI and ERG. We'll get into the details of that title. Then in our Play Hard segment of the podcast, we'll get the origin story of 312. I'll be joining our friends from Elysian for a less formal conversation. We'll hop from our friends at Elysian to a 312 hangout with myself, CFO Joe Cardinale, and Creative Manager Everett Anderson. Finally, we'll close out today's episode with a brief reflection on what 312 really means to HRP. Many of you out there may be on your way to see family for the holidays, and many of you are probably not able to. COVID-19 is one of the many areas where HRP works, creating preparedness plans, overseeing decontamination, making sure work sites are safe, and connecting our clients to COVID-19 testing products. One way we do that is our work with our friends at Elysian. Here's Eric Retzlaff of EMDI giving a quick rundown of the company. So Elysian Medical Distribution uh, was founded to help support some of our investment banking clients who couldn't get uh, certain supplies as a result of COVID disrupting marketplaces. Uh, So we were kind of dragged into this marketplace to help our existing clients. We found ourselves in a situation whereby we were able to aggregate different manufacturers and provide tools to help combat COVID and be part of the solution of supplying our clients and then expanding that to organizations that had not been our clients to help them better prepare and fight COVID. We'll hear more from Eric shortly as we introduce our first segment, a conversation with Eric Retzlaff, Managing Director, Elysian Medical Distributors. Garfield Drummond, I'm Executive Vice President Operations with Elysian Medical Distribution. Sean Malin, I'm a Regional Manager with HRP Associates. Where we'll talk about COVID testing kits, types of COVID testing methods, the approval process, and what's on the horizon when it comes to vaccines. We go now to Sean Malin, HRP's Regional Office Manager for the Carolinas, who hosts the conversation. Eric, why do you think there's so much confusion in the general population in regards to the validity of the results of all of these different types of tests? Um, Whether you're talking about an antibody test or an RT-PCR test, uh, you don't have to have too many conversations before you hear somebody tell you a story of how their test was was phony or uh, the results got thrown out, Um, you know, what, how would you explain the um, collection method strategies and how, you know, is it really the test itself or is it the method with how the, the, the sample is collected? Can you 
provide us some color on that? Sure, I think some of the variability in the sensitivity and specificity, which in common nomenclature would be called accuracy. It's not the a scientific or a medical description, but it's what everybody uses. And we all remember the, uh, co the popular press um, remarks regarding the governor of Ohio who tested positive and then subsequently tested negative. And when you get those kind of stories that hit the press, one of the things they don't talk about is A, what collection method was used, B, what test was used, C, who applied and sought the sample. So um, in some of the tests, the collection methods I would describe as not being comfortable, something you wouldn't want to seek to do on a routine basis. Um, the deep nasal swab, which I have had done to me, is again something I hope never have to have done to me again. Um, and there is a whole school of thought that says if you're going to have someone take a sample from you in the cases where you can't do it on your own, you want to find someone who doesn't like you. Because if you find someone who likes you when you're cringing and your eyes are watering, aka you're crying, they will typically stop collecting the sample. But they may not yet have the sample they need to get the exact result that you're seeking. So sampling method is a big thing. If it's, if it's deep nasal, uh, that's arguably the most invasive. Maybe followed by deep oral, something we call the tonsil tickle. Um, that you know creates the gag reflex. It's not a happy thing. Um, and then there's the finger prick, which is actually painless. I've done that many times, but it's poking a little tiny hole in your finger, so it's a scary thing to do. Um, collection method becomes a huge deal with respect to accuracy. We also recently saw the state of Nevada um, arguing that they would not use the tests that the federal government was sending them because that they felt that they were not accurate enough, even with a proper collection method. The federal government um, made them do the tests, made them accept them, only to find out two weeks later that the state of Nevada was right. The tests are not accurate enough for their um, protocol. So uh, we are still in a period, I think, where the science has not been proven on, on most of COVID. Peer review, we haven't had time for peer review. We haven't had time to have adequate time to assess everything. We're in a global emergency with this pandemic. Everyone is doing the best they can as fast as they can, but it leaves a lot of gaps. And that's why you'll see articles every day that contradict articles from the day before. And these are from reputable news organizations who arguably have check their sources, double check their sources. Yet, um, as we've all seen also in the press, there are medical doctors who are contradicting each other almost minutely uh, on the news, um, either because of political persuasion or because of ignorance or because lack of peer reviewed um, uh, articles. So if I went in and got a, um, a nasal swab uh, up in the sinuses as opposed to right around the, the nostril there. And I told you that I had COVID symptoms and I wasn't feeling too well, but I went and I got a PCR test um, with a nasal swab and it wasn't too bad. And they said I was negative. What would be your knee jerk reaction when I gave you those clauses and that amount of information? What would you think about the validity of the test that I, that I experienced? I would not have a knee jerk reaction to that because it, it's, those knee-jerk reactions that lead to the 
uh, press statements that you see, right? Every case is a different case. The expectation for society is that we are going to have perfect results, perfect testing in this imperfect world that we're in. And it goes back to the statement that we made earlier in that no single test is going to be a panacea. It's not the silver bullet. You know, we have to use clinical information along with the combination of tests to come up with to formulate the final answer. Uh, so it's, it's upon us to understand that uh, there, there could be a variety of reasons why the scenario you just mapped out, Sean, uh, might net result A today and net result B tomorrow. Uh, but it shouldn't take away from the fact that uh, overall, when you're deploying a consistent strategy, uh, that you're going to be able to address and catch most of these infections. That should be the overall objective. And let me add that a false positive is as dangerous as a false negative. Um, and most people worry, worry mostly that they get tested and it says, oh, I'm fine but in fact they are not. The alternative case has been uh, established and unfortunately experienced by nursing homes where they gave many of their patients slash residents COVID tests that showed positive and in fact they were false positives but the nursing homes were accumulating their positive residents slash patients in one wing of the nursing home so the ones that wound up there as false positives unfortunately wound up being real real positives later by virtue of proximity to the actual positives. So this is why, uh, and you described it well, Sean, doing more than one test can increase your the certainty with which you can operate under vastly. Yeah, so you're going to see three buckets of testing uh, deployed uh, to, come, to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, there is the uh, what's commonly referred to as the gold standard, uh, the RT-PCR uh, test, uh, which, which is a lab process molecular test. Uh, there is the rapid response antigen test, uh, which is a, uh, in, in a number of instances, it is a uh, rapid test that provides results in under 30 minutes, under 20 minutes, under 15 minutes, depending on the actual device being utilized. Uh, for the rapid response antigen test, you will find uh, that that can be completed via uh, a lateral flow cassette that gives you a result almost immediately, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, there are some device manufacturers that has uh, uh, somewhat portable equipment uh, that can read these tests in the field. You know, that's sort of one additional layer of complexity. Uh, and then there you can also administer and process antigen tests in a lab. Uh, the key distinction between the antigen test and the RT-PCR test, as I mentioned, the RT-PCR test is a molecular based test and it, it is looking at molecules, amplifying those molecules to get a very precise read in uh, on the sample collected. Uh, the antigen
antigen tests, it is looking at proteins on the surface of the, of, you know, the supposed virus, the sample, to determine if those proteins match up and indicate infection uh, of, of, of that uh, sample collected. Uh, the rapid antigen tests, uh, generally speaking, and I'm not going to use the term accuracy, okay, because you will hear that quite often uh, when describing these tests, and it isn't, uh, pardon the wordplay here, it isn't an accurate depiction and description of the value of those tests. Uh, the it, what, what really matters is sensitivity and specificity, uh, which is uh, respectively monitoring true positives and true negatives of a test. And so where an RT-PCR test is generally in the 99 percentile and above sensitivity levels, uh, the, the antigen test uh, could be anywhere from 80 plus 82, 85% sensitivity, and there's some on the market that might be at 95% uh, at sensitivity. Now, I'm not gonna dive too far into the numbers. Um, I probably have already gone too far and have lost a few listeners, but uh, the, the, to Eric's point earlier, and I'll get into the antibody test, which is the, the last category of testing, uh, but to Eric's point earlier, the, the true value and the, the true measure of success when deploying any type of testing strategy is not to look at any single one as uh, the silver bullet. You do it once and you resolve all issues. Uh, you find the best strategies where there is some uh, utilization uh, of multiple types of tests or increased frequency of test in that population set. Uh, so you can test via PCR, which is the most accurate test on the market uh, or most sensitive test uh, on the market. Uh, and you can test a population set on a Monday, uh, but it doesn't mean that that group uh, will remain uninfected for anyone that was negative on that PCR test come Friday uh, because this is not a you test once and it's an individual never has to worry about uh, getting uh, infected or passing along infection. Uh, we, you know, the, we have to treat this as a, a battle that you have to constantly attack and we attack by constantly testing and testing and testing again so that you can isolate and remove infected individuals from that group so that they're not carrying on and infecting others. Uh, and real quickly before I, I <laughs> overlook uh, the last test uh, strategy, and that's the antibody testing, uh, which is looking at, uh, you'll commonly hear people refer to that as a kind of uh, a rare view look into the past, into past infections. Uh, but when deployed in, in in sort of concert with some of the other test strategies and when you're utilizing antibody testing that's uh, looking at a variety of antibodies, you know, the most common ones being the uh, IgM antibody and IgG antibody, uh, you're able to get almost like a 360 
degree view of infectiousness of infected individuals and uh, appropriate treatment plans for those individuals. The antibody test, uh, also known as a serology test, that is utilized in a blood sample or plasma. Uh, and so a, a simple finger prick, uh, think of uh, think of the uh, a diabetes test. You know, there's a lot of folks out there that have done diabetes tests and uh, you do a simple finger prick, blood draw, uh, that's how you collect that sample. Uh, for the antibody test, one of the other values in that uh, compounds to make to create that 360 degree view of, uh, of individuals being uh, tested for antibodies, the ones that we carry and, and provide to market uh, as I mentioned, they are indicating or providing indications of two types of antibodies that uh, our body produces in response to COVID-19 infection, uh, one being the IgM antibody and the other being the IgG antibody. And so we look at, when we talk about antibody testing, we generally look at it uh, from a trimester uh, uh, aspect. Uh, in that uh, there are three phases that you will see uh, when your body is producing antibodies. Uh, uh, phase one, trimester one, uh, being IgM only. Uh, and so that is the acute phase of infection. You're um, actively fighting uh, or shedding virus at that point. Uh, trimester two, uh, you will, your body is producing both the IgM and the IgG antibody, uh, which indicates that you are potentially still infectious uh, during that phase. Uh, and then phase three, which is the IgG only, uh, the convalescent phase, which is a full-on recovery mode. Uh, when, and again, so I'll, I'll shift back or, or reference one of our previous uh, points in that when we utilize the combination of the three testing methods, uh, you're able to really get that full view of what's happening with the patient. You know, so if you've done a PCR test uh, that is a very good diagnostic tool, uh, really tells you whether an individual has been or is infected with the virus and they have sat out for 10, 14 days and are now ready to go back to school, back to the workplace, back to society. Uh, antibody tests often play a critical role in uh, confirming that that individual is free and clear of uh, the infectious uh, nature of the virus. Uh, so sorry to kind of throw a bunch of things at you in, in that comment, but uh, antibody testing collection method is uh, blood draw uh, via finger stick. Uh, antigen testing, it's typically done in uh, one of three ways. The two ways that are, uh, uh, have, has already received emergency use authorization are nasal swabs and oral swabs. Uh, so uh, deep nose uh, uh, nasal swab as well as back of the throat uh, uh, oral swabs. Uh, and the same applies for PCR testing as well. Uh, 
again, the big distinction between PCR testing and antigen testing, uh, at least a rapid antigen test anyway, uh, is that PCR tests are always going back to a lab to be processed and analyzed. And depending on the type of antigen testing, uh, that could be done on the spot in the case of rapids, uh, using uh, local machinery uh, for some of the machine-based tests or sent back to a lab uh, for lab processed antigen testing. And let me add, uh, Garfield, with respect to uh, the PCR test being 99% plus accurate, along with that, as it seems with everything, there's a downside, which is to say they are so accurate in the way they amplify the patient's RNA material, they can actually amplify dead RNA virus and show the patient to be COVID positive when in fact they are not and maybe have not been for quite some time. So one of the downsides of being so super accurate and being the gold standard is you can actually wind up with false positives because the accuracy is so great. And so that's again where having multiple ways to test the patient, if it comes up positive in, in a PCR but they feel fine, the use of an antibody test to see where they are on the antibody spectrum. If they're IgM, first trimester, they still may be infectious. If they're IgM and IgG, they're kind of in that middle trimester and it's waning. And if they're IgG only, then it is uh, generally accepted that they're out of the infection period and they're on the convalescent uh, mode. What would you guys say to the narrative that, you know, at the time of this recording, um, we're on the heels of uh, Pfizer, I think was last week, and Moderna was over the weekend or earlier this week. And, you know, folks are probably starting to think, well, we don't need to get tested. My workforce doesn't need to implement a testing strategy because the vaccine uh, is here. There's lots of news uh, about it. And, you know, we're going to just kind of sit back and wait for the vaccine to come out. What would be your response to an opinion like that? I would say that with respect to the timing and um, the timing of the vaccine getting to the general public, we might not want to get too far ahead of ourselves. I mean, hope springs eternal. And my goodness, we all do hope that we will have something, you know, next week and so that we can all get together for the holidays. You know, that would be great. Uh, Let's not uh, count our chickens until they're coming off the barbecue is kind of the way I look at it. Um, and so I would say that we can expect slash hope for the general public to be to being vaccinated sometime early summer is what the scientists we listen to. Our chief medical officer thinks that might even be optimistic uh, with respect to how quickly they're going to get the vaccine rolled out to the general population. You know, we've got uh, probably if we're going to give it to everybody over four years old, we've got, you know, 300 million people we have to focus on. Um, the Pfizer vaccine has to be shipped at 100 degrees below zero, which is about nine degrees off of the temperature of dry ice. The Moderna vaccine is a lot more flexible and can be stored in a, in a common refrigerator for up to a month. But there are some significant logistical problems. There's manufacturing problems. And remember, the 94.5% accuracy numbers we were talked about on the Moderna, that was after seven days of a vaccination. 
how quickly does the vaccination fade? We all get, uh, many of us, I should say, many of us get flu vaccines every year. They last four to six months. How long will the vaccine for COVID-19 last? There is nobody on earth that knows that answer. And with respect to testing, we actually have a test that will tell you, A, whether the vaccine was effective when you got it, but it'll also tell you how long it's lasting. So Garfield mentioned our antibody test, which measures two types of antibodies that the human immune system creates when it detects the virus. The second of those is the IgG antibody. If a person got a vaccine today, but they were worried, hey, what if I'm in that 10% that it doesn't help? Well, you could take an antibody test a few days from now, and it would tell you whether or not it took. If you have the IgG antibody, the vaccine worked on you. Now, if you're worried about how long that vaccine is gonna last, because it will be different in every human. Every human has a different immune system, a different age, underlying morbidities. Every person will be different. There will be generalities that will be established over time, but none of us know any of that now, neither do the people at Pfizer or Moderna know those answers right now. If you were to take a antibody test once a month, you would know if you are still protected. And so we think that uh, in fact, there will be a, a great use of the kits going forward. Um, wouldn't we all like to know, gee, do we still have confidence? A, do we have confidence when we were just given the vaccine that it worked for me and I'm not in that minority group, but nevertheless, and B, how long does it continue to last? Um, key information that we're gonna need to get back to work, get back to school, and get back to doing the things that make life worth living. And one of the other factors that should be taken into consideration as we get closer to vaccination of the population, um, you know, whether that, whether vaccination is made available in one month three months, six months, or further out. Uh, it isn't an open ticket to let's disregard everything that we have been trying to do as a society over the last nine months, right? It doesn't mean that we're not wearing face coverings and uh, practicing social distancing where, where appropriate uh, or wherever possible. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that we aren't administering testing on a routine basis because this, this is the key thing that uh, we should consider. Think about uh, today. Uh, if you are going to a doctor to get a flu shot, uh, you are not given that flu shot if you are sick with the flu. Let's jump forward with, you know, three, four, six months from now. Uh, we're vaccinating the population. You are not going to get vaccinated if you have COVID. Right? It's a simple, it's simple, right? So we need to make sure that we are taking all the steps we can to reduce the spread now. And when the vaccines become available, we get vaccinated and we hope to eliminate the spread entirely. So, you know, we talked about the three types of tests here. What kind of supply and demand uh, is EMDI experiencing right now? And, and um, do you see a shortage of these particular, any, any of these particular products? Which ones are, are highly coveted? Which ones are waiting 
uh, manufacturing and, and those types of details. As we've gone through the pandemic from back in, I'll call it May, when the test kits first became available, uh, there's really been a, uh, a process of kits becoming available, uh, kits being going into shortage, new kits becoming available that are better or have a better testing method, maybe are cheaper. And so there's been a, a real evolution in the whole kit business in the last, call it five or six months. Um, today, what we're seeing is that there are, are high quality um, tests that give very reliable results. They're available. Um, if you know who to go to, they're available um, at reasonable prices, but the manufacturing has not fully caught up with the demand. So there is a supply shortage. Uh, you have to know where to get these things. Um, and um, that solves the problem of the, of, it solves the supply problem. Um, the states are sometimes scrambling with each other to get access to these kits. Um, there is, are still some, uh, what I would describe as bad actors in the marketplace that make it difficult for the good actors to get satisfaction. I would say that our team spends far more time teaching potential purchasers what the differences are, how to use them, what the right protocol should be. Um, so we wind up feeling a lot more like educators, which by the way is a good environment when we're talking to educators because they get that. And, and I would say that a large portion of our clients' customers are in fact in the education field, both as Garfield mentioned, K-12, and then um, colleges and universities, um, especially the college and university sports teams, um, they, they come to us because they have um, testing protocols that have been cast on them by the NCAA, and it's very regimented what they must do and how they must do it, and finding supplies of the specific types of kits that they have been um, directed to use has not been simple up until, golly, just into the last few weeks. What other, aside from higher education and K-12, um, you guys mentioned manufacturing. Can you uh, what, uh, get into the specifics of what type of sectors uh, that you've worked with? Do you see any common threads there, or it's basically people who find their way to you guys? Yeah, I think, uh, I wouldn't say that there is any particular common thread. Um, what we're finding the, the, the folks that are coming to us are those that are in uh, or they find themselves in a situation where if their operations shut down because they've got three, four, five positives in their population, uh, they're losing tens of millions of dollars per day. Uh, so it becomes a critical uh, strategy to deploy uh, so that they can get that early warning and they can isolate and remove uh, positives from their population, uh, thereby not having that negative impact on their, uh, on their bottom line. Uh, I think health and safety is obviously uh, one of the driving um, components, right? It, it, it's really leading the decision-making uh, policies of the organizations that we're working with. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, finances obviously affects it as well, right? Can an operation maintain um, uh, profitability 
if they have lost half of their staff, if they have to shut down for two weeks or a month, um, you know, there, there's a lot of us, uh, myself included, uh, that we're able to work from home. Uh, but, you know, a tremendous amount of our economy is based on uh, organizations and individuals that has to show up to an office or show up to a facility uh, and run that business, operate that business. And uh, the folks that are coming to us are those that are in those critical need situations where if there isn't someone present, that business is not functional. When we talk to a lot of the K through 12 uh, systems, school systems, uh, as important as the students are, uh, if, if five students are positive, and they have to stay home for two or three weeks, uh, it's not the end of the world. Most of those schools aren't, don't have to shut down if, if those five students have been isolated and they're not uh, continuing uh, to spread the virus amongst the rest of the students and teachers. However, you know, a school that might only have 20 teachers, you know, a small school, if they lose a quarter of their teachers, they may have to shut down. And, and that creates, you know, again, a domino effect on, you know, that community, not just that school, but the community and everyone around that community. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess the common thread is, you know, organizations that they can't afford to not be operational. Uh, those are the ones that we're having uh, more conversations with than not. So you guys are supplying a variety of different testing options to to academia and employers. When do you think that I will be able to go down to the street to the local pharmacy and and pick up my own test for my family? Um, with the incoming administration on the heels of what you just said, Garfield, it sounds like maybe that's closer than it was a couple of months ago. Yeah, and and actually there was a test that was approved uh, yesterday uh, for in-home. Uh, prescription only, but uh, in-home collection and reading. Um, uh, so it, it's happening. And, and that's the nature of the way that FDA is moving. Uh, their focus, I think, shifts. Uh, at, at one point, it was, you know, let's, let's ensure that we have adequate PCR tests out there for the market. Uh, it's, as far as approved tests for the market, whether it's actually making its way to uh, users that demand it is another topic. But, uh, you know, at, at my last check, there were, uh, you know, 290 total tests that had uh, emergency use authorization, 225 of which were PCR tests. Uh, there was a big emphasis initially on the antibody testing. There are currently 58 antibody tests on the market uh, with emergency use authorization. Uh, and then there was a move towards getting more of the rapid antigen tests out there. And there are currently seven uh, rapid antigen tests, not including the new one that just came out yesterday, uh, which is essentially an antigen test. Uh, so uh, I think that is the natural progression that you're going to see um, if if the FDA if I were running the FDA I would certainly make that one of the priorities uh, as well as making more of the rapid antigen tests uh, available to the market 
uh, whether that's uh, in a point of care setting uh, or uh, an in-home setting. Do you foresee that in-home uh, prescription-based antigen test uh, being administered via tele telemedicine or are people going to have to go to their general physician uh, to get the prescription? How's that going to work? I think it's probably going to be structured where it's telemedicine, right? The whole the, the whole idea of the in-home testing is to reduce the burden on the healthcare system, uh, and so, you know, I can be on a Zoom call or a go-to meeting with my physician, and you know, based on uh, what I've described to them, they might write the prescription, uh, send it to the local pharmacy pick it up, you go home, take your test, and inside of 30 minutes, you've got the results. Uh, what, what, I have, what I understand of the current test that, uh, that, that's gotten approval uh, is, you know, it's gonna be priced, you know, somewhere in the $50 range, which is a pretty pricey test. Uh, when will that make its way onto the shelves and be readily available so that you know everyone that wants it can get it uh, I, I think you're gonna you're gonna see similar issues as we've seen with all of the other tests uh, where the demand is so great um, that it might take a while for everyone to gain access to it um, right it's not just the at-home test uh, that you, you can envision having a, a strong and high demand. All of the kits that we have access to, uh, the demand is very, very strong. And, um, you know, our, our conversations with uh, the clients and the partners that we're working with is uh, move swiftly, uh, analyze it properly, but uh, the longer you wait, the less likely it is you're going to get access to the kits that you want when you need it. What's the current wait time right now? I know you have three different types of three categories of products. I think you guys have 10 different types of tests or 10 different manufacturers, perhaps in general. What's the what's the wait time right now for the average kit? Let's say an antibody kit. Antibody kits are readily available. Uh, you know, so if one of our clients told us uh, this afternoon that they need 10,000 antibody kits, we could get those delivered to them inside of five days. Uh, antigen kits, PCR kits similarly, uh, those are, we, we have some uh, very good contracts with, uh, with CLIA high complexity laboratories that perform all of the analysis of samples collected and uh, those laboratories, and we have multiple, so that we're able to maintain uh, that short turnaround, right? With PCR testing, anything that's administered or processed in a laboratory, uh, what makes that test valuable is the speed in which uh, the results are turned around. If you're waiting five, seven, 10, 12 days, it's a useless test. Uh, so we have uh, multiple contracts so that we can maintain uh, a very short turnaround. Uh, we're turning around on average in inside of 24 hours. So um, that's the turnaround. Uh, the materials, we, we don't have any shortage of those. The area that, um, <laughs> that you, you see the, the most uh, or 
the greatest likelihood of there being shortages is in the rapid antigen test kits. Uh, now, we're fortunate, and again, part of this is in how we plan and how we coordinate efforts with our manufacturers and uh, how we try to educate our, our clients on uh, what's available today, what's going to be available next week, uh, so on and so forth, and planning accordingly. Uh, generally speaking, we're able to turn uh, antigen kit orders in seven to ten days from the time it's uh, processed in our system, uh, which is pretty good, and that's generally enough time for any organization to uh, you know, adjust and plan and budget and so on. The FDA approval process can metaphorically uh, be linked to baseball, which is to say when the manufacturer gets up to the home plate, uh, he's got all his testing done, they have all of their results in, and they submit the information to the FDA for an emergency use approval. Once they've done that, they're at first base. And in the olden days, seven months ago, that would authorize them to sell the product into the marketplace. Um, the FDA has kind of um, limited that more recently because a lot of companies that knew they would never actually get to second base, um, they were happy to be at first base because they were allowed to sell the product. So the FDA has tightened up on those rules, and as they did so, they also kicked a bunch of kits out of the marketplace. This is back in June. They kicked out scores and scores specifically of poorly performing tests and said, no, no, uh, you cannot not only not sell this, but we are pulling it off of our, out of the queue for approval. So once again, you get to first base, which means you're now filed with the FDA waiting for the EUA, emergency use approval. Okay, let's say things move along and they go well, you get to second base. That is your EUA. And that is where of all the kits uh, Garfield has listed here, the vast, vast majority are in that EUA situation where they, they are authorized to be sold. They've been emergency approved by the FDA. The next way that you want to go is to get to third base. And that's what we call the point of care. That's the kit that was approved today. And it's able to have you do the test at home without a, a medical professional performing that test on you. And it still takes a prescription, so it's not the holy grail. The holy grail being when you get back to home base, so you've hit a home run. And that's where you walk into the pharmacy, you go to next to the aspirin, you buy a set of five COVID test kits, you take them home, you perform the test on yourself, and it's all said and done. To get from third base to home plate, it's, it's not equidistant as it would be to get from home to first or first to second. It is a much, much more circuitous route. Doctors like to get paid for what they do and the education that they've gone through, as do pharmacists. If we take them out of the equation and put this on the shelf at the Walgreens, they no longer get paid for everything that they've done. And also it means that whatever that is that's on that shelf there's going to be extreme price competition for and prices are going to drop through the floor and it, it becomes an entirely new marketplace than waiting for a prescription and paying your copay to get that from your doctor. Um, so that process, we like to think of it like a baseball diamond and there's steps along the way. And right now today we saw the first test kit get to third base. Um, but it's again, 
harder to get from third to home, as it is in the baseball metaphor, um, than it is anything else. Did Eric just make baseball better by suggesting <laughs> if you hey. if you change the distances between the bases, forget the diamond, let's make it a trapezoid, right? Is that the right thing? Can you imagine how much more interesting the game would be? Like if you had You mean it might actually be interesting? Yes. <laughs> I I think we should stop the cast now. We need to hey, push I, this. We need to make the trapezoid for baseball. No, I, I, I've always thought, hey, I've always thought they should make, uh, they should cross baseball and golf. If you put water hazards and sand traps out there <laughs> in the outfield, it would be interesting. <laughs> Big thanks to Sean, and I take you now to our conversation with Alicia Washington. Good morning, Alicia. Good morning, Tom. So you are leading HRP's drive for diversity and inclusion. Uh, you've been named the director of JEDI and ERG, in addition to your role as director of marketing here at HRP. Mm -hmm. uh, and since the topic we're gonna to discuss today is misconceptions about diversity and inclusion, I thought we could start with your title because I suspect not everyone will know uh, what those acronyms mean. Yeah, sure, thank you. Uh, so yeah, JEDI, uh, JEDI ERG, uh, as many say. Um, so JEDI stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. Um, and ERG stands for Employee Resource Group. So. I'm leading the efforts on the employee resource group and um, helping with the JEDI initiative for HRP. Uh, so we wanted to discuss some uh, myths, I think, around diversity and inclusion. And I think the first one we can kind of talk about is uh, the kind of composition of what that means and mm -hmm. who, and that we're not thinking about exclusion when we talk about uh, diversity and inclusion, right? Correct. So uh, what can you uh, say to that that point? Sure. Um, I think it, it's a very common misconception. Um, a lot of people think that when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, that means, you know, push all the white people out the room, all the, the old white men, you know, you hear these terms all the time. And that's actually not what it means at all. You know, diversity means variety, if you look it up in, in the dictionary. And what we're trying to... Um, promote, support, encourage, is allowing more people to be in the room together. So allowing more people to have opportunities. So we don't want the white people to disappear, go away. Um, it's just a, in a lot of cases, there's predominantly white people in the room. So we're just, you know, talking about letting other people in the room, you know, um, you know, pushing um, the seats over, you know, making space for people to also sit at the table who are not white or um, other people who, you know, have disabilities, um, you know, kind of more females um, um, or whatever gender you identify with. But it's just kind of allowing for more people to be in the room. So it's definitely um, not about, you know, getting rid of um, white people. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of uh, a lot of assumptions I think people have about who gets to be in there. But... Similarly, people make a lot of assumptions about what diversity inclusion, who it's targeted towards. Mm -hmm. And it's really a lot more than just the, you know, the first knee-jerk reaction maybe about it's just about race or it's just about gender. Right, right. And, you know, we're, 
we're trying to um, when you when you embark on a program like this and you're getting people involved and a lot of people have those misconceptions, the best thing you can do is just really educate people on really what it means and how to think a little bit bigger. Um, so when we're talking about diversity and inclusion or JEDI, justice, equity, diversity and inclusion, um, we're talking about policy. We're talking about people with disabilities, um, different situations that um, people go through, different life experiences, um, you know, people live in different communities. It, it covers so much more. And if we can have more companies thinking of it in that way, I like to give the example of, um, you know, when a company decides to change their family um, leave policy to allow for men to take paternity leave when their um, partner, you know, has a child, um, that's diversity. Because again, it's all about making sure that people have the, the same opportunity. And that's where equity comes in, right? So um, that's what diversity is. So it's more than just race and gender. Um, I think race and gender, it's easy to go there. It's like the low-hanging fruit because you can look across the room and say, okay, it's predominantly male or it's predominantly female or it's predominantly white. Um, but really, it's it's more than that. And I'm really hoping that when you know companies embark on this and they start their ERGs, right, their employee resource groups, you're going to get people who look different, right, come from different places and you know, you may find yourself, oh, I never spoke to this person before. I don't know anything about them. And then you find out you have a lot in common with them. Um, and you thought that probably you were so different than them. So um, that's that's really what I want people to think more about when, when you talk about diversity and inclusion. It's much bigger and broader than race and gender. Mm. You know, I remember before this program started having a couple of conversations around this topic with different people. And a lot of what I heard was, you know, this is great, but, you know, we're, we're business, you know, we, we do this thing. We're not here to make, we're not here to fix the world's problems, mm -hmm. but really this is as much about um, what's good business as it is about doing the right thing, right? Right, exactly. Um, you know, I think that as, um, you know, citizens of this country, we all have a responsibility, right? And, and when we think about our businesses and especially as, you know, marketing individuals and, and business leaders, um, you know, there is a huge competitive advantage by having a diverse workforce. Um, you know, we want people to do this for the right reasons because it's important and it is the right thing to do. But when you're looking at it from a business side, it, it does bring your business to the next level. You have to make sure that your um, workforce matches the communities that you're working in. Um, when you have a diverse workforce, you have diversity in thought. And, you know, you have different perspectives. People are going to bring new ideas to the table. And that's just going to elevate your business. Um, it brings innovation. Um, it brings better talent. Um, you get more productivity from your employees because they feel heard. They feel included. Um, so it's uh, across the board. And studies already show that, that, you know, it's it's the right thing to do. But it's, it's a huge um, uh, business um, incentive um, for a lot of companies. Well, great. Thank you so much, Alicia. Um, I think there's so much here to talk about that we'll definitely be returning to some uh, various topics great. around this, um, this initiative. Great. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks for having me. Here's me with Brian Bolio talking about the origin of 312.
All right, you are? Uh, I'm Brian Beaulieu. What's your uh, title here at HRP? I am the drafting GIS manager. How long have you been with HRP? Uh, in March of next year, it'll be 35 years. Mm. I am employee number 16. Mm. <laughs> and in addition to your many other roles at the company, you also run the Alumni Association? Yes. Uh, so uh, Tad and Dan asked me uh, about almost two years ago to uh, run the Alumni Association, and um, they wanted to put together uh, a way of, of getting in touch with uh, all the folks that have come through the door over the years. Um, I think, uh, I'm not sure how many um, employees we have now. I know it's over 100, um, but we've had, you know, 500 people come through. Mm. Um, so there's there's a big, there's a few hundred people out there that we'd like to reach out and, you know, and reconnect with. That's what we want to do. We want to create that community again. What is the origin of 312? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Tom, back in 1995, HRP moved from New Britain to Plainville, onto uh, New Britain Avenue in Plainville. And we just happened to be located a few steps from J. Timothy's. Plainville, Connecticut. And tell us a little more yes. about what J. Timothy's is. J. Timothy's is a pub and restaurant. Mm -hmm. And if you're not in Connecticut, they are known for having maybe the best wings ever. Anywhere. Yeah, they have some pretty good wings, uh, dirt wings, where they uh, sauce them, fry them, sauce them again, fry them again. Good stuff. All right. So before we make anyone too hungry, let's uh, jump yeah. back into 312. I reached out to a couple of the uh, guys that I recalled were kind of the founders of 312. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I got two stories. Mm-hmm. They're kind of similar. The gist of it is, it was a Friday afternoon. One of the guys had a, uh, just got off a rough call. They decided that they needed to take a walk over to Jay Timothy's, take the edge off. There was also some discussion of who could chug a beer quicker. <laughs> so it was it was uh, Tom Sedgwick mm -hmm. and Doug Pelham. Mm -hmm. And uh, and what are their respective roles? Well, they were just, uh, they were uh, engineers back then. Mm -hmm. And Tom, what does he do now? Uh, Tom is, uh, he's kind of the big cheese in New York. Mm -hmm. And is Doug still with the company? No, Doug is, uh, actually Doug is an attorney that we use for some of our environmental stuff. Gotcha. And there was also a, a guy that we re uh, affectionately refer to as Zeke, uh, Keith Gibran, and uh, he is no longer with the company. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, I actually been in touch with him recently about the uh, alumni group. So uh, Zeke is the one that had the rough phone call. Tommy said that he had a, um, a call with a client at 3.30. So he said, well, we can go over and have one, and then I have to get back. Mm. And of course, he and Doug were the ones that were arguing over who could chug the beer quicker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so basically, they went over, um, and they happened to notice that the time was 3.12. Walked in. Had a beer. Doug says he won. I don't doubt that. I've seen Doug <laughs> chug a beer. He turned around and went back to work. Doug says after we got back, we realized that the rest of the afternoon passed in a most pleasant manner. <laughs> and actually, Tommy says after our quick beer, we decided we should do it again. So they both say after that, next Friday, 312, back over across the street to J. Timothy's and 
that's the rest is history. I mean, it became a tradition. They mm -hmm. started inviting more and more people, and sometime between '95 and like '98, somewhere around there. '93 mm -hmm. twelves ago. '93 twelves ago. Yeah, when we moved here to Farmington, the nearest uh, establishment for alcohol is a little bit of a walk. Mm. <laughs> and uh, we've had the good fortune of having a couple young men, you included, who mm -hmm. would go out and buy us some pretty darn good beer on Fridays. It uh, doesn't always happen at 312. Sometimes it would, you know, be 412 or whatever. But it's a community thing now. Mm -hmm. um, How would you describe the spirit of 312? You know, we go in there and, and it's the end of the week and you, you did what you had to do and it's time to blow off steam and... Yeah, it, it's, that's what makes it great around here is um, it's just a few friends getting together over beer, you know. And you get to actually make friends with people who you, maybe otherwise you never had any real contact with. Absolutely, yeah. Get to absolutely. see a different side of people. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely, uh, you know, it's, it, it's ingrained in HRP. 312 is, that's ours, mm -hmm. you know. Um, nobody, nobody can touch that. That's, that's, a, that's HRP. Mm-hmm. Here we are again with Sean, Eric, and Garfield, and this time me. Um, so I guess to kick it off, how did everybody here meet? Like, how do you guys all know each other? I was introduced to Eric through a mutual acquaintance of ours. So I was working with Maurice Chrisman on uh, COVID services and, and COVID technologies and things like that. And he connected me with Eric many, many, many months ago. Um, thinking May, Eric. And then from there, uh, we started building our relationship and, and, um, and moving things forward there. Yeah, I, I joined uh, the Elysian team uh, late summer uh, through one of the other ventures that uh, one of the investment management groups that I was working with uh, got involved with. And uh, through that introduction to Eric and, and the Elysian team, I, I began working with Sean and uh, hopefully serving as one of his right-hand men here at Elysian to uh, help deliver and uh, identify and educate uh, his client group on strategies and solutions that uh, can aid them in this fight that we're all fighting, yeah. That's a really nice way, Tom, of Eric saying, hey, we got this guy, and he asks so many questions, and he takes up so much of our time that we have to hire somebody and dedicate him to Sean Malin just to keep the phone lines open because I just wanted to learn so much. It was just so interesting <laughs> to me, and, uh, and I had a lot of questions. And so uh, Garfield fell from the sky, and uh, – We've been buddies ever since. Uh, I was introduced to both Sean and Garfield uh, through a multi-decade, dare I say, generational uh, relationship uh, of, of a group of people working with Garfield. Um, on one side and on the Elysian side, the same thing. These are relationships that go back 20, 30, 40 years. Um, and because of my uh, experience in healthcare with seniors, I was able to kind of join two groups together and, and bring together what I'll call the, the magic of our organization 
are a combination of incredible people like Sean and Garfield. Yeah, you know, one of the, uh, I'll, I'll touch on something that I think really fortified the relationship that I think Sean and I have developed over the past few months. I, in all honesty, uh, and I'm not trying to be cheesy or anything, um, because that's just not me. I'm, I'm, I'm not a cheesy guy. Uh, I, I actually feel like I've known Sean for probably five, 10, 15 years, um, uh, because we were able to connect really quick. Uh, you know, the first week of September, actually, he, he was able to hang a lot of things over my head because his Pittsburgh Steelers demolished my New York football giants. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, I think that that set our our glide path uh, to just smooth, smooth sailing from that point, I think. Um, no, it's been a pleasure to, to work with Sean. And uh, I think what we've been able to accomplish uh, in a very short period of time uh, has been incredible. Uh, I, I see from everything that he does on a daily basis, he's just very dedicated to his clients and uh, supporting them. Uh, and I'm, you know, I and the rest of the Elysian team, we're, we're thrilled to be able to uh, to help make that job uh, just a little bit easier. Garfield, we were probably easier to maintain our friendship because of the access to Zoom and GoToMeeting and Teams because I think that a lot of my pestering, if it were just phone-based, um, he'd definitely think I was a huge jerk because of my incest. And the only reason why he feels like he's known me for five or ten years is because that's how many times a day I call him. <laughs> 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 and And I think that... You know, there there were mul there have been multiple days where Garfield and I have logged on to yet another webcam call at like four o'clock, and uh, we're both shiny and bald. But if we had hair, it would it would likely be all disheveled. Um, you know, to Eric's point earlier in the podcast about uh, the education. You know, this isn't an easy topic. It's it's got a lot of nooks and crannies there's a lot of angles there's a lot of possibilities for for people to solve problems with this so um you know it it's been it's been really fun working with garfield and i think that some of the 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 best calls i think we've had is at the end of the day when we're both very punchy i remember i can't remember who the client was garfield and of course we can't say but i remember there being some sort of snafu with the with the mic and there was a bunch of feedback as everybody's experienced throughout the pandemic right somebody calls in with their phone and their computer and there's this weird echo reverb and um you know garfield and i were disconnected for a couple of hours there but we got on there and we immediately started dancing on the webcam there which which you know probably wasn't um the smart play, but the but the person, the individual loved it and thought we were pretty humorous there. And for having that be the introduction to such a serious topic, to have these two guys here, you know, kind of gyrating to the reverb of the mic at four o'clock because we've had quite a long day was was probably something that that individual probably still talks about. I would think. What do you think, Garfield? Well, yeah, and and I don't know if this was the same situation, but again, we all have our. Uh, you know, Zoom go-to meet and tragedies that hit from time to time. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I remember there was one situation where Eric and I were, 
we were on back to back to back to back conference calls and webinars. And for whatever reason, I had in the middle of one of those webinars, a call with Sean and one of Sean's clients and I couldn't log in. And uh, Sean did his dance, proverbial dance. I don't think he was actually dancing on that particular instance, uh, but he was able to keep the conversation going. And uh, I think I jumped in and, you know, boom, it was, it was as if I, I might've been 15 minutes late to that call, uh, which is not typical. I'm, I, I like to think that I'm, you know, uh, prompt and on time, but I was able to get in just in time to uh, uh, keep things going. But it, it, it shows how I think in a very short period of time, uh, we have developed a cadence. Uh, Eric and I often talk about this with the way he and I work together. Uh, there is a cadence in how we do things um, and uh, playing off each other. And you know, sometimes it gets into a, you know, we are in a really, really serious time and we, we have really serious jobs uh, and we take it extremely seriously. Uh, but it's also good to be able to chuckle with uh, folks that you work with. Um, unfortunately, we're not able to go and sit and have a beer together, but uh, it's almost like we're, we're sitting back and having a beer together because we've built a cadence that allows us to work well and play off each other uh, in delivering a very serious and uh, important message, uh, but break a smile every now and then and help each other you know, through what sometimes is a tough, challenging day. Um, I think the three of us have been able to do that really, really effectively, uh, and it's resulted in, you know, I, I think the success that we've had uh, in <laughs> in providing the right message, the right education, the content, uh, and ultimately delivering solutions that's meaningful to the market. Yeah, I'm trying to find that work-life balance, trying to strike that. That's a that's a big part of kind of HRP's company culture. I wonder if you guys can talk to talk about how, you know, in your own lives, you kind of find a way to strike that balance. Well, I'll, uh, th this has been, uh, I'm, I'm generally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself an introvert. Okay. I, I tend to be the more outgoing person in my family. Uh, but I do love, uh, I have a very tight circle of people I call my friends. Um, and, you know, the last nine months have been tough, right? Because it, you know, I love to go out and golf and, you know, who doesn't like to go to the bar and hang out and go to a restaurant and, and do that stuff. Uh, and it, it's been, it's been tricky to uh, reset, right? And, uh, you know, I've got two kids and, and my wife, works a, a very demanding job uh, and all four of us are in the house and we're basically punching in in the morning and we're we're at it I I kid you not there are days that uh, you would think if you've got four people working and living in the same house 
uh, that you're going to bump into each other throughout the day. Uh, but there are days that go by where I, it's almost like I kiss my wife goodbye in the morning. We grab our coffees and we go our opposite ways and we see each other again at five o'clock. I kid you not. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's, we, we've had to create new dances to, um, make the most out of these really challenging time, whether it's, I, I find that as a family, uh, we sit at the dinner table together a lot more now than we did before. Uh, you know, we'll have family dinners and, you know, it's a, a good opportunity to catch up and, uh, hear from the kids and see how they're doing and, you know, work through challenges that they're experiencing. Yeah, I would say that uh, certainly the last, uh, call it 11 months almost, have been extraordinary. Uh, I'm a guy that in the year 2019, I was on 200 different commercial airline flights. Um, and I have been known and ridiculed by my lovely wife that sometimes I sit down at dinner at home and I routinely and automatically reach for my seatbelt um, because I eat more <laughs> meals on airplanes than I do at home. Um, and to have not been on an airplane since um, February 2nd of this year, uh, it is, you talk about a significant change in life um, and to have spent about that same number, about 180 nights last year in a Marriott uh, property and not spent any since um, January of this year. Um, it's like, uh, it's one of the best things that's ever happened in my life. I actually got to know my wife again and unfortunately she has had to get to know me as well eric i'm just imagining you having this pavlovian response in regards to putting your tray table in the upright <laughs> position after you're done eating and just flipping the kitchen table night after night I, I haven't flipped the table yet but i'll guard against that you know for me it's really about um finding kind of creative fulfillment during these times you know working on my writing outside of work, but then also, you know, getting, being able to really get that, that sense of creative fulfillment through th this podcast, through uh, HRP's YouTube channel, you know, and uh, kind of through it all, working at a company where the coworkers that you have around you really feel like your friends and your family and people you can rely on, you know, it's a really great, uh, really great environment here. Uh, Sean, what about you? Yeah, on the heels of what you just said, um, you know, obviously we're used to coming to work, right? Environmental consulting, we have uh, office space, we have interactions, we have war rooms and stuff like that. And it's it's been interesting, um, probably more so in the last couple of months because it's been such a duration where if you happen to see somebody in the office, um, you know, you go into those those office space type uh, things when life was normal, right? Where everybody's at the water cooler and you have the, the fake, right? There's no real emotion coming out of the, hey, how was your weekend, Sean, kind of stuff. And, and you know, there was an incident yesterday where I, I saw a, a coworker that I honestly hadn't seen in months. And it was a different inflection point. Like, hey, how you doing? What have you been doing? You know, blah, 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 blah. And so that's, it's kind of funny. It's been interesting um, to to kind of, realize that you miss those relationships of the, of the people that you're in the trenches with every day on the home front it's it's more like my experience has been more like eric's where 
you know, we have a client base that, that has issues all over the country. And um, I'm probably have sat beside Eric in the, uh, in the Delta, uh, you know, suite getting my, my, my peanuts and stuff and opening up my laptop and crunching things. And so I have two young kids that, that, you know, that's been the silver lining for me is to be able to have been home for the last couple of months and, and um, really pay, play more of a role in, in their day-to-day lives as opposed to on the weekends, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, and uh, I think in hindsight, I think that's what I'll, what I'll think of uh, when I think of the pandemic. Obviously, there's a lot of, of bad things uh, that, will, that I will never forget. But, um, you know, the, the connection that I'm having with my young kids, whereas if this were a normal year, you know, I'd be here, there and everywhere. So um, that's that's kind of my take on it. Here's what a 312 conversation sounds like after a long week of hard work. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the play hard section of the podcast. And my God, do we ever need to play hard? Because getting this recording started has been an absolute disaster. We are now into an hour and 15 minutes of trying to figure out how to record something. We have... Down in Texas, why don't you introduce yourself, Tex? Everett. That's you. Anderson. There he is. And hey, everybody, it's Joe Cardinelli. The Joe Cardinelli. And uh, what is everybody drinking? Joe, what do you have? I got some Bullet Rye whiskey. Bullet Rye whiskey. And I've drank a lot more than I expected. Probably, yeah. It's been it's been one of those Fridays. Everett, what do you have? Uh, I have an Oktoberfest. Oh, that's cute. It's a little it's late November. Well, it feels like October all the time down here, so. All right. And uh, I have switched from uh, Treehouse, one of the fine IPAs of Treehouse, down to a Pabst Blue Ribbon to in keeping Ooh, with the spirit PPR. of today. Nice. Absolutely. Now I'm ready for that flavor and aroma of PBR that reminds me of so many <laughs> misspent nights in my youth. Uh, for me, it was Natty Ice. Oh, yeah, of course. No, no, frat boy house party is complete without no. plenty of natty daddies lining the floor. We, uh, wallpapered the walls with the boxes. <laughs> oh, God, did you make an American flag out of it? No. With a bud light, a big the, wall of natty ice. Light, the bud light and the bud heavy. I saw people. That would that, have been a good idea, but we did not think of that. We were that's probably like, too drunk. That's like peak frat. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would have been smart. I should ask Dave Webster, who was in my fraternity. Dave Webster was in your yeah, fraternity? Yeah, same fraternity. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Small world. Are there like black and white photos of you on the walls? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That was good. Uh, they were in color. Okay. I was less round then. <laughs> More hair. Uh. Big goatee. <laughs> when I thought that was cool. Mm-hmm. So this is a kind of a new Friday tradition for us recording the three twelve podcast. Usually three twelve is just uh, at least up here where we're recording in Farmington. We see it expressed as we've been working hard and now it's time to kick back with your coworkers 
maybe have a beer if you're so inclined, and get to know each other a little better. So we're hoping that with this section of the podcast, you all out there are going to get to know us a little better and kind of see what we're about outside of the straight lay, straightforward work that we do. So at the risk of being too formal, let's get back into some of the normal. I actually promised everybody that we weren't going to treat it like this, but anyway, <laughs> we weren't going to be like, and now, <laughs> introducing. Oh, but I was thinking of something the other day. What is the most obsolete piece of technology that was a part of your life, your childhood? Like, not what was, like, not something that you use now that should be, that is obsolete or anachronistic, like a record player or something, but something that feels like it belongs to a different era, but you clearly remember it being part of your life at some point. Well, should Uh, we say, sorry to interrupt, should should we say that I'm 45 years old, mm -hmm. you're in your 30s. 32. 32, and, and Everett's in his 20s. Yes. yes. So there's going to be a good gap there. 21 years old. I'm not 21 years old. How old are you? 23 years old. 22. 26. 26. See, we're very good friends here. Yes. You think I'm 21? I've been here for five years. What? Five years? Yeah, and We know I, you're not 21. Yeah. Um, one thing I thought of, uh, which I just find hilarious thinking about, is the uh, in school. I know it's not like part of your everyday life. But I'll get there eventually with other things. But like in school, you remember those like overhead projectors where you had oh, like yeah. you like wrote with like a, a erasable marker like on oh, a plastic. What were they called? On a plastic sheet, on yeah. top of a thing, and then it would project that onto the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh the, my god! The what most the heck absolute. The most absolute. Most ancient tech ever. I can't even call it tech. It's just it's just light. <laughs> it's there's no like it's a light bulb in a box a with a mirror mm-hmm. but what do they what do they do now i just think it's smart it's all like, smart boards and i mean they still use that like when i was in like like seventh or eighth grade people were still using those but i think that might be more i think that might be more of a a teacher preference like if you had a, an older teacher they might have just mm-hmm. kept doing that because i think a older teacher using a smart board might have been uh a little daunting of a task that's a good one though okay i have two answers for this because one of them the first one is going to give me some perspective on how far removed everett and i are from each other no oh boy but when i was a, a wee lad the i would spend most of my afternoons after school watching the same four or five movies over and over again uh on the vcr <laughs> Everett, was a VCR ever a part of your childhood? That's like with like VHS type tapes, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just that answer. <laughs> well, it's funny because I don't, I don't even, I think it's been so long since I've even heard the word VCR, I guess the letters VCR, that I was like, wait, I thought it was called a VHS, but that's just the tape. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now yeah, I no. do still have a VCR. My um, we... I have a TV with a VCR and an actual VCR player. Wow. We yeah. need to clean it up. I think we don't. I told my wife, it's my wife. Says, can't we just convert this to DVD? Yeah, <laughs> be done with it. Yeah, my my dad had a video recorder that had like you put a V 
VHS tape in it and then recorded it. The thing was massive. The big tape? Yeah. The actual You put big the tape? whole thing in the side of it and then you oh, wow. record. He would do it like every Christmas. <laughs> That's probably crazy. like bigger than like a 4K camera that like has like, you know, that you can like do sports uh, broadcast. Like a broadcast camera, you know, like the the oh, big giant yeah, like ones. A big, big one. Yeah, like that's yeah, probably yeah, yeah. how big it was. He almost needs a stand for it. Yeah. No, that's a good one though. I mean, I had. I mean, that was a really good one. My my mom had a minivan that had a VHS. Like it was like one of the first ones that had a TV in it. Oh my god! And it had it was VHS. <laughs> and I watched the same four movies. Like it didn't matter if we were going ten feet or ten hours. I'd be like, nope, popping in a movie. I'm watching whatever. So when I first dated my wife, which was close to 20 years ago, mm. when we had to record shows, it wasn't uh, TiVo or DVRs like they are now. We had to use the VCR. And I remember getting a VCR that had a timer when it could start recording. It was like revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my answer to kind of, because I wanted to see how Everett would respond to that mm. my my real answer in terms of like the oldest most obsolete thing that i was involved with as a kid was uh i had a electric typewriter and i used that to do all my writing for a very long time because for most of my life uh a laptop was prohibitively expensive there's just no way someone's gonna have a laptop and i i wanted one so bad <laughs> but i had an a little electric typewriter instead of that that broke so easily. Yeah, I remember my friend had a typewriter, but like we used it like as a toy. Like I'd be like, "Oh, that thing's cool. <laughs> Let me just like slap around on the keyboard because it was cool to hear the noise." But like we never used it like practically. Typing butts. So yeah. I can't imagine at like ten years old I was writing anything <laughs> too impressive on a typewriter. <laughs> That's fair. Ever just wrote butt, 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 butt. You got jokes. So the first one that I already was thinking of, beepers. Mm, I have that on my list, beepers, actually. Yeah. Uh, well, you obviously never had a beeper. No. Um, and I still remember, like, the stores that would have the displays of the beepers. <laughs> it's the stupidest tech that ever came to mind. Because if you got a call and you're driving, you have to pull over, find a phone, and then call it back. So, I mean, it was a very stupid piece of tech. But I had two of them. <laughs> so. Nice. Um, and the other one you thought of when you brought up the overhead projectors, and I was thinking of school. So, uh, microfiche. Microfiche, yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No idea what that is. That sounds like an expensive huh. meal. If you've ever had to write a paper at a college, some of the, like, really important documents you would need to cite would only be available on microfiche and they're basically like i mean you used to have to use a light or a screen to to be yeah. able to view them but there were old articles from way back that you have only could use them use this piece of tech to do it what even is it i don't know yeah it's it's its own thing i don't even know what it is <laughs> it's just it was dumb yeah you but... watch old 80s movies you might see some time them using it but you had to use this big projector machine um and you'd have these sheets it was like plastic yeah and you would have to put it on the light and flash it up into the screen mm -hmm. it was 
stupid. I remember doing a lot of research when I was in college for that, and then yeah. trying to find. And those machines were yeah. enormous. It trying was to find crazy. The, the, how to the MLA citation for microfiche. Like, Forget this. I'll use a different source. There's no way. Oh my gosh, you guys watch Mandalorian? Not yeah. the new one that came out today. I haven't seen the new one either. Uh, yeah, I watched it this morning. That would, don't ruin it. I'm not gonna ruin. What do you it? think overall so far? Too much. Oh, season two or in general yeah, both yeah. seasons? That's a question. Ooh, season two. I think, okay, first let's get, like, what did everyone think of season one? Joe? Fantastic. Beginning, the first couple episodes, the last couple episodes. Middle episodes, filler episodes. Mm-hmm. But as an well, overall I mean, every art. TV shows, every TV show is like I, that. I know, but well, you would expect something like Mando. It's a uniquely episodic when everything now is very much serialized. Right. Yeah. Hmm. I like the first season. Yeah. I think it's clearly like how to do Star Wars correctly. So the reason I liked season one so much is that because they kind of went back to the roots of Star Wars, like why I liked it in the first place, the original trilogy. Like it feels very, uh, it feels like it could have been filmed then. Obvious, obviously it's not because of how good it looks and all that stuff, but it feels very grounded to the fact that it's like, this is where star wars started like this is what it is in terms of like how it looks the people in it the but at the same time it 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 references things that are new like it references things that are in you know the animated shows or you know even stuff from the from the new trilogy i guess but not much but it it just they they do a lot of uh fan service i mean i really I, i i'm not a huge western fan but I really do like the Western aspect of it, mm. especially the first episode of season two mm. was basically a Western. I mean, it was great. Yeah, I think part of the yeah. problem is, like, story structure-wise, we're so used to things being a single story across other episodes is that, is that when you do something that is interconnected but separate stories... Um, like, your brain doesn't know how to process it, right? Like, what Mandalorian needs to do is teach us how to watch the show, and I feel like it's not doing mm. enough of that. So your expectations are mismatched with what's happening. You can't keep pace with the, you can't keep up with the pacing of the story, and so your first watch through, it's like, oh, I didn't think it was going to end there. Like, why aren't we doing more? But there's nothing wrong yeah. with the actual structure. It's just that your expectations now are right. so much different. Totally. Especially well, I think the problem, too, is they, is they keep changing the the duration of the episodes didn't you say this the, the I mean, latest one that we haven't watched joe and i yeah watched the, the, the one that just the one that just came out this morning was 35 minutes long what's going on there what decade do you associate with star wars 80s yeah Ever? yes for me i always associated with the 70s just because that's it's pretty well, much only one awful, movie was yeah. in the 70s and barely and barely yeah, yeah. oh i mean the only 78 i think the only reason i would associate it with uh, the seventies is because like that's when Star Wars started. So then you're like Star Wars was made in the seventies. So that's like I understand that. I got yeah. Should we get out of here? All right, let's All right, get out of here. I'll see you guys. We need a cool sign off. Yeah. Signing off from the nerdios. What is 312 really about? It's more than just a beer with your friends on Friday. It's about bringing everyone together. 
It looks different in every office, but it's the same spirit. What makes HRP HRP is more than just how hard we work. It's the unique mix of personalities and people. There's no other company in this industry with the color and character of HRP. All of that comes together at 312. Whether it's a Friday beer in Connecticut, a barbecue in New York, going out for steaks in Missouri. HRP can be a loose idea as a company, but our culture is the common thread for every office. In the business world, culture is talked about as a business imperative. Everyone wants to know how to create it, but HRP has always had it. Our company was founded on the work hard, play hard concept. 312 harnesses that concept in unique language. The story of 312 is a work hard, play hard story. It wasn't just work and it wasn't just play, it was both. That's HRP's culture in a nutshell. At HRP, we don't say we have culture, we say we have 312. Thanks for joining us on this first episode. Keep an eye on this feed and on HRP's official YouTube channel for a new episode of the podcast, the last Wednesday of each month. The 312 Podcast is produced by me, Tom Simmons, with account assistance from Everett Anderson. 